Well, once again, good morning and happy Dad's Day. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 5? Well, the day has come. Many of you have been hanging on to the Ephesians study here at Calvary because to get to this part on marriage. It's been a long time coming. But this morning we are going to be entering into a section in Ephesians 5 covering verses 22 through 33 that we are calling God's design for a spirit-filled marriage. Now, let me just say this. Marriage was originally designed by God to be one of the greatest joys and sources of blessing on earth. In fact, it was designed by God to represent the oneness and the love relationship that He desired to enter into with the human race, a relationship that finds its fulfillment in Christ. Of course, Jesus is the bridegroom, and someday those of us who have committed ourselves to Him as His bride are going to be taken to heaven where we will officially be married to Him and reign with Him forever. He would love, of course, if all the people of this world would accept His gracious invitation to to be saved and to live with Him for eternity in heaven, but of course many choose not to. But God desires for all men to be saved. God wants to have a loving relationship and oneness with the human race and marriage was God's way of showing us in a very small way what he wanted that to look like but God designed marriage to be one of the greatest blessings on earth what has happened to it what has happened to it well last week we saw that man's rebellion in the garden of Eden led to the fall of man but it also led to the fall of marriage in fact as we said last week sin not only disrupted man's relationship with God, it also corrupted his relationship with his fellow man, including and especially his relationship with his wife. And it was the fall and the subsequent curse that really has brought chaos and conflict into marriage. And so ever since the fall, marriage has become a very difficult proposition. I mean, you're talking about the joining of two people with fallen natures, fallen, sinful, selfish natures, Coming together in marriage for the purpose of the two becoming one, well, it's kind of like mixing gunpowder with nitroglycerin. It's a very explosive mix. And often conflict fueled by selfishness becomes the spark that ignites the two and has blown many marriages to pieces. But you know, for many years in our nation's history, as long as we as a nation walk with God and obeyed his word, God gave to us incredible grace to have strong marriages and families. However, in the last half century or so, as we as a people have begun to move more and more away from God and his word, we have seen the negative consequences of this in every area of life, including and especially marriage, because we see marriage has been steadily declining, and marriage and family are the building blocks of a society. If they go society goes. And so we have seen marriage declining steadily over the last, oh, 30, 40, 50 years. The statistics bear this out. I'll just give you a few. I'm not going to, because people's eyes glaze over with too many statistics, so I'm not going to go there. But I just want you to know that every year, several million couples pledge themselves to one another in marriage, vowing to love each other and to to stay by each other's side in sickness and health, uh, good times, bad times, until death do they part, and yet almost half of those marriages will end up in divorce. This problem has contributed to many things, one of which, one of which is unwanted children. Something I dug out, I was a little surprised over, 
There are as many abortions by married women in this country as by non-married women. Maybe more. It seems uh, many young couples today just don't want children. In fact, one-third of all childbearing aged couples have been sterilized. Why is that? Well, the only thing I can think of is because children make divorce messy. And so if couples don't have kids, when they want to cut things off, when they want to just end things, all they got to do is leave, children just get in the way. I mean, I think part of the problem is that this generation of kids has grown up in families that are such a mess that honestly, um, they feel like, why even get married? I saw what my parents went through. It was horrible what they put us through. Why go through the pain and the expense of divorce? Let's just live together until we grow tired of each other or until things get too complicated, then we'll just walk. We'll just bail out. I mean, there'll be no hassle. We'll just walk away. According to a U.S. census, the number of cohabitating couples in 2000, listen, was 10 times the amount of 1960. In some sense, cohabitation is replacing dating, said Pamela Smock, an associate professor of sociology at the University of Michigan. In fact, just recently, I heard a statistic, maybe you did too, where just recently, for the first time in our nation's history, the number of young couples living together outside of marriage uh, became greater than the number of young couples living together who are married. And if it keeps on going the way it's going, we could see the next generation not get married at all. Because why bother? I mean, if we keep telling people the ultimate goal of life is your happiness, then why bother dedicating and committing my life to somebody else and having to make them happy? I want to just worry about me. And we might just have a generation of kids that decide not to get married at all. Just go from one person to the other to get their selfish needs satisfied without any commitment or love or the pretense of, of marriage for life. None of that. I don't know. Unless God works a miracle and revival comes, I think that's where we're headed. Now, I'd like to tell you that Christian marriages are doing a lot better than their secular counterparts, but that wouldn't be true. They're not. However, the good news is we as Christians have a tremendous advantage over the world when it comes to marriage. You know why? Because we have the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God on our side. And don't ever underestimate that. See, in God's Word, He has given us his pattern for marriage. Now, a pattern, of course, is what you use. Uh, you know, you, you've got, you buy a dress pattern, right? Some of you girls that sew. That pattern becomes what you use to make an exact copy from, right? Without the pattern, you know, you might change it along the way, and pretty soon after you make the dress several times, it may not look anything like the first one. That's kind of like marriage today. God set forth a pattern in his word for marriage. Over the years, that pattern has been kind of corrupted. It's been perverted. So that today, when we look at what marriage is today, it looks nothing like what God intended it to be from the very beginning. That's a problem. But God has given us His pattern for marriage in His Word. And I think that's only fitting because the only person that really has the right to tell us how marriage is the function is the one that created it in the first place. I mean, marriage is not an invention of man. It is a creation of God. Society didn't invent marriage, and so society doesn't have the right to mess with it and to try to mold it and remake it into whatever it wants it to be. And as Christians, if we want our marriages to be what God desires them to be, we've got to go back to the beginning, right? We've got to look at what God intended for marriage from the very start. Because I'll tell you this, guys. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian 
and you have the power of the Holy Spirit at your disposal in the Word of God, if you're not going to walk in the Spirit, which is what Paul said in verse 18, right? He said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That means be controlled by the Spirit. It means, you know, let God govern and guide your life. If you're not going to do that, if you're going to be selfish and, and you're going to bring all that selfishness into your marriage and you're going to demand your way and, and, and what I want and it's going to be this way or nothing at all, and when you read the Bible and you see what God has said about things like this and you say, well, I don't really care, I'm going to do it this way, then these things are not going to make any difference in your life. Because even though you have the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God at your disposal, if you're not willing to submit to the Spirit's control and obey what God has said, guess what? Your marriage is not going to survive just like the secular marriages are not surviving. And this is why we see so many Christian marriages that are not surviving. It's not that God doesn't want them to survive. He does. It's not that he hasn't provided all the tools we need to make them all that God wants them to be. He has. It's because we are allowing the world to influence us and the flesh more than the spirit and the word of God. And as Christians, if we want our marriages to be what God has originally designed them to be, we got to go back to the beginning to see what God said about marriage in the first place, when he first created it. we got to get back to Genesis to see what God had in mind for that original pattern for marriage. And so I'd like you to turn to Genesis and start with chapter 1, verse 27. And folks, I'm going back to what God said. I realize that, you know, we have been brainwashed by the culture into what they want us to think marriage is all about. But you know what? God created it. God ordained it. God told us how it is to function. We have to get back to what God said. We may not like to hear it, but if we want our marriages to be all that God wants them to be, we've got to get back to what He has said. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says that God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him Male and female, he created them. So God made man, or actually mankind, in his own image. And after his own likeness, male and female, he created them. Now, let me just point out first by saying this. God is a, by his very nature, is a relational being. His very nature is a relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And if you and I were created in his image, then know this, we were created for fellowship, without which we would be incomplete and unfulfilled. God did not create us for loneliness or to be isolationists. The need for companionship and fellowship is something God coded into our very DNA as people made in His image and after His likeness. And that's why God expressed this from the very beginning. From the very beginning in Genesis 2, God said, it is not good that man should live what? Alone. Now, as you study that statement in Genesis, it's interesting because before God said it is not good, seven times he said it is good. At different intervals of creation, God stopped and said it is good. When God created the light and separated it from the darkness, he said it is good. When God made the seas in the sky, he said it is good. When he created the sun and the moon and the stars and, and the fish and the birds and the animals of the earth, at various intervals of creation, he stopped and said, it is good. And finally, God created man, placed him in the Garden of Eden, and kind of stepped back from the canvas of, of his creation, pleased with all he had done, and said, it is very good, Genesis 1.31. Then God gave man the assignment of naming all the animals he had created. 
Now, this is before Eve was even created, okay? This is only when there was Adam now. And as Adam stands there, naming all the animals, all right? And they're coming by him two by two. And he says, wow, uh, hippopotamus. Yikes, giraffe. Uh, I don't know how he came up with these names. I mean, you know. But he did. But he noticed something as, as, as he was naming these uh, pairs of animals, that there was no one to correspond to him. In other words, he had no companion for himself. And so as the loneliness of his predicament begins to set in, God steps in. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse Verses 21 and 22, it says in verse 21, And the Lord caused, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Now the language here is significant. Notice that Eve was taken from Adam's side, not formed out of the dust of the ground as Adam had been formed by God. But she was taken from the side of Adam's own body. I want you to see this. She was taken from a part of Adam so that he would naturally be incomplete until God brought her to him, joined them together, and only then would they both be complete. That was God's intention. You know, God could have made Adam and Eve together. But he did it this way because he was setting out the pattern of marriage. That, first of all, Adam being made first, Paul tells us, and I think 1 Timothy, that God did that because Adam was to be the leader of his family, of his marriage. Then Eve was created from Adam's own body, which signified that she was to complete him, that he without her would be incomplete. I like what Augustine said on this subject. He said, and I quote, If God had wanted woman to rule over man, she would have been taken from man's head. If God had wanted woman to be man's slave, she would have been taken from his feet. But God wanted woman to be his partner, his complement. And so God took her from his side, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved, so she could stand alongside him and be his companion. End quote. Now when God had finished creating Eve... He brought her to Adam, who was just waking up from the anesthesia, a little groggy, you know. But when he got his first glimpse of Eve, this most beautiful creature he had ever laid eyes on, and he had just named all the animals. But God brings this gorgeous creature to him. And in the Hebrew, it comes through very clearly. He's overwhelmed, very excited. Let me try to catch it a little bit in the English for you. This, he said, this one, all right? This one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for from man she was taken. He's excited, okay? Now, Adam called her woman. Woman is a translation from the Hebrew word isha. The word for man in Hebrew is ish. The word for woman, isha, means taken from man. And then they were married by God, who both gave the bride away and performed the ceremony. So the Lord God acted like a pastor there with a daughter, as I'm going to someday give my daughter away and marry her. Someday. (laughs) 
But as God joined them both together, she became Adam's companion and also his help meet. Uh, don't confuse help meet with help mate. Certainly she would become his helpmate. But the Hebrew word translated help meet in the King James Version is a word that means someone to fill up the empty places in your life. Someone to stand along with you and make you complete. You see, it was God's intention from the very beginning in marriage that the woman or the wife was to, she was to complete her husband. She was not to compete with her husband. We've messed all that up today, haven't we? I mean, you know, the battle of the sexes is being fueled by those who want to promote, you know, this egalitarian philosophy of life that they are so devoted to where there is no roles, that everybody is absolutely equal in every area of life. And, you know, we are equal, but we have roles that God has given to each of us. That doesn't mean one's superior and one's, or one's inferior, like we said last time. It just means that we're all equal in the eyes of God, men and women, but we have certain roles that God has ordained that we function under. And this is how God has set up marriage. The woman or the wife is to complete her husband. Anyways, that's the way God originally designed it to be. I know it's not a very popular concept in our society today that has tried its best over the last 40 or so years to redefine marriage and especially the roles that men and women play in marriage. But folks, to me, it's no wonder why marriages aren't working today. You know why? Because people aren't following the manufacturer's handbook. God is the manufacturer, right? And any good manufacturer always supplies with his product a handbook, which, if you read it, tells you how the product works. So you learn how the product works from the manufacturer's handbook. And, of course, there's always a section for troubleshooting problems, right? Right? And if you stick to the manufacturer's handbook, the product is going to work exactly the way it was designed to work. Now, if you're like me, when it comes to putting things together that come from a manufacturer, often I will just look at the picture, throw the handbook on the side, look at the picture in the box, and try to bolt the thing together, and you always wind up with spare parts, and the thing doesn't quite work right. And so, all right, get the book out and go back and do it the right way. We see that going on today with regard to marriage. God made us and he has provided for us his manufacturer's handbook, if you will, the Bible. And if we will follow what God has said, not only will we have the best lives possible, not the, always the easiest, I'm not saying you're going to be problem free in your life, but your life is going to be fulfilled, it's going to be used by God for his glory, it's going to have purpose and so on. And especially if you follow God's instructions in marriage, your marriages are going to be blessed, harmonious, fruitful, and they will be one of the greatest sources of joy to you on this earth. But you've got to follow what God has said. Now, if we're talking about going back to the beginning to see what God designed marriage to be and how he regulated it, because, of course, he's the one who ordained it and created it. He has the right to regulate it. Well, I think we need to spend a little time looking at what Jesus said about the permanence of marriage, where he said in Mark chapter 10, uh, talked about this. So turn to Mark chapter 10. I'm not going to develop the whole passage, but I do want to pick it up in verse 6, because Jesus talked about marriage from the very beginning. 
And that's what we want to look at. What did God design for marriage? Or what did he have in mind from the very beginning he created it? And we read in Mark chapter 10, verse 6. I'm just going to start uh, partway in where Jesus said, From the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. You see those first few words in verse 6? From the beginning of creation. We want to go back and see what God had in mind from the very beginning. But from the beginning of creation, do you realize marriage was not a product of the fall? Marriage predates the fall. Marriage is the only institution that God created that he put into place before sin entered into the human race. In fact, some have even suggested that God never intended marriage for unredeemed people. Because when he first ordained it, it was between two people that were in perfect fellowship with God. And it was only until sin entered the human race and man and, and woman fell and had these selfish, fallen, sinful natures that marriage began to labor and strain under the burden of all this selfishness and sin until the very life of it began to get crushed out of it and marriage began to die. But do you realize as Christians, again, we have a tremendous advantage over the people of this world when it comes to marriage. Because the Bible says when we gave our hearts to Jesus Christ, and he became our Lord and Savior. The Bible says instantly at that moment we were placed in Christ. We became members of his body. And in Christ, he has given us the ability to overcome or to rise above the effects of the fall and the curse in our own marriages. It's kind of like getting into an airplane and as that thing takes off down the runway, and of course the law of aerodynamics comes into play, and it lifts off the ground and soars above the earth, of course the law of aerodynamics is greater than the law of gravity. If you step out of the plane, though, of course, you realize the law of gravity is still very much in effect. But while you're in that plane, a greater law overrides a very powerful but lesser law, which is the law of gravity. The same is true with our marriages. The, the Bible says that we, as unbelievers, were under the law of sin and death, the curse. But once we entered into Christ, being in Christ allowed us to rise above the curse. We, we were able to overcome the effects of the fall in our lives and in particular in our marriages. And that's why as a Christian, you being in Christ, your marriage can really go back to the Garden of Eden in a sense before sin entered into the human race. I'm not trying to say your marriage is going to be sinless. I'm just saying you can go back, in a sense, to the time before the fall messed things up, and your marriage can be something really beautiful and harmonious and what God intended it to be, if, if you really want that. So Jesus said from the very beginning of creation, again, marriage is the creation of God, and as such, only God has the right to define it and regulate it, even though today people are pushing for things like gay marriages and even group marriages. But these don't qualify as marriage in the eyes of God. That's what God has said. Now, here's the thing. We're hearing a lot in the news about uh, the right of, of homosexuals to, to marry. 
And uh, already I'm reading other groups who are polygamous saying, well, if they get to marry, why can't we marry? What makes them, why do they get to marry? But we who believe in multiple spouses, we can't marry. This is opening up a whole can of worms, right? As soon as you tell people, look, you can define marriage any way you want, then you open up a can of worms. And I'm telling you what right now, every time we turn our back on what God has said and try to do it our way, there's problems, big problems. But here in Mark chapter 10, Jesus quotes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and Genesis 2, verse 24, and he presents four reasons why divorce was never really a part of God's plan for marriage from the beginning. I want to go through these quickly. In Mark 10, verse 6, Jesus said, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. First of all, Jesus tells us that God created them from the beginning, male and female. In the Hebrew, in verse 1, excuse me, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, both male and female are in the emphatic position in the Hebrew, uh, giving the sense of this, the one male and the one female. So we could translate that from the very beginning of creation. God made them the one male and the one female. Now, why is that important? Well, it tells us that God didn't create a group of males and a group of females. He could have done that, right? You know, everything God does is for a reason. God never wastes his words. God never expends any energy on, on things that he does if there's not a purpose to it. Why didn't God create a dozen men and a dozen women right off the bat and marry them all, get things really going fast? Because he was laying down a principle for marriage that would be for the rest of human creation. That by God not making multiple males and multiple females, he was saying, look, there is no option for multiple spouses or, uh, or divorce and remarriage, right? It's not something that God wanted from the very beginning. Also, of course, there was no possibility for homosexuality because God made one man and one woman. As we have said before, God didn't make Adam for Steve, he made Adam for Eve. And the idea is that God did this for a purpose. He was trying to establish what marriage was supposed to be. So from the beginning of creation, God made them the male and the female. Number two, he said in verse 7, For this reason the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Secondly, we have to understand, first of all, that Adam and Eve didn't have any parents. So this applied to future generations, all right? He was laying down this principle for everybody else after Adam and Eve. But I want you to focus in on the Hebrew word there, translated joined in the New King James, or if you're reading the King James, cleave, it's the Hebrew word debak, and it refers to a strong bonding together of objects and often was used to represent gluing or cementing two things together. Not significant. Because if God had said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be tied or rubber banded or paper clipped to his spouse, we might not get the impression this was supposed to be a very permanent union, right? The fact that God said, I'm gluing them together indicates he intended this relationship to last until death do they part. It was in the mind of God that marriage was to be permanent. A lifelong commitment to people joined together, glued together for the rest of their lives until death do they part, not until divorce do they part. Number three, in verse eight of Mark 10, Jesus said, 
and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now here Jesus gives the third reason why divorce was not a part of God's plan for marriage. And that is, he says, the two become one flesh. Jesus is saying here that when a man and woman are joined in marriage, they become a brand new creation with each other. They're no longer two, but they're actually now one in the eyes of God. One living entity. And therefore, indivisible and inseparable except through death. I mean, to divide a single living thing, you would have to cut it or tear it. But either way, you, you kill it, right? Jesus was trying to communicate something very special to us. When two people get married, they don't remain two people anymore. They come together with one heart, one mind. They come together physically as one in a very deep you know, act of sexual relationship. But God has made them one. And of course, that oneness becomes literal in their children, right? How you know, each parent you know, donates 23 chromosomes to that child, and that child literally becomes one flesh from the two, the mother and father. They become a unique product of the fusion of two people into one flesh that carries the combined traits of both. And then number four, Jesus said in verse 9, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. And the fourth reason Jesus gives for divorce not being a part of God's perfect design for marriage is that from the very beginning, the first marriage of Adam and Eve to the present day, God has joined every couple together in marriage. This is important. Even unbelieving marriages, even marriages between unbelievers are still joined by God in heaven because God created the institution of marriage. And if unbelievers want to be a part of it, that's fine, but they have to understand God still oversees the whole thing. In a very real way, God officiates every wedding on the face of the earth because they are joined in heaven by God. Now, let me just say this. Every marriage is made in heaven, not every match. All right. What do I mean? Well, a lot of people, and I'm going to just talk about Christians now. A lot of Christian marriages are failing because, I'll be honest with you, uh, sometimes Christian couples can rush into marriage too. Often they do. And you have a situation where we'll say a, a, a gal met a guy and he appeared to be a very strong Christian and wanted to go to church all the time while they were dating. And then they get married, you know, and then he's not really wanting to go to church anymore, doesn't want her to go to church is not a very strong Christian, maybe not even a Christian at all. And so I get a phone call. I didn't get a phone call before they entered into marriage, but I get a phone call after. Well, pastor, I need to talk to you. Okay. We sit down. Look, I, I was duped. I was deceived. Okay. This guy told me he was a strong Christian. I believed him. And now I come to find out that he's not. He, he deceived me. Uh, which means he couldn't be the right one for me. He couldn't be the one God really had for me. So you know what? I feel like I'm justified in divorcing him and in finding the right one. And I say, I say to personally, like, I got a newsflash for you. When you said I do, he became the right one. God says, look, you can pray, you can seek me, and I'll reveal my will to you. If you want to rush into this, know this, once you say I do, he becomes Mr. Right. And I can take that marriage and make it something beautiful. It's going to take a little longer for me to do that. But I can, you know, I can take, you know, isn't that our, all our testimonies? How we messed our lives up and God came in and began to recreate and began to work. And all of a sudden, 
out of the garbage, he brought something beautiful? Look, I believe that every marriage is made in heaven because God joins them all. And so it's not the kind of thing where we can say to God, well, Lord, you know, I didn't really get the right one here, so obviously I can get divorced and find Mr. Right. And God says, no, he is Mr. Right now. Oh, but Lord, (laughs) come on. God says, trust me. Be the person I want you to be to him or her, and I'll work in their heart. I'll begin to conform them. I'll make you both one with each other. Your marriage will be beautiful. You'll be happy. It's going to take some time. It's not going to be easy, but I'll do it. We just don't want to give God time to work. We want to take the easy way out and go ahead and, you know, opt for a better situation. But let me say this, to destroy a marriage is to destroy a creation of Almighty God. That's why Jesus said, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The Greek word is kerizo. And in the context of marriage, it always, always carries the idea of divorce, not simply temporary separation. So we could say, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man divorce. Something that Jesus stressed in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. When he said, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. The word there where Jesus said, you know, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, the Greek word there is pornea. We get the English word pornography from that Greek word. And it means any illicit sexual practice any you know any kind of illicit sexual activity adultery fornication homosexuality pedophilia bestiality all of those would come under the umbrella term pornea or sexual immorality only those are a reason for divorce it doesn't mean if your spouse commits any one of those you have to divorce them you can forgive and god's grace can work through that and 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 that's an awesome thing if people work through those things But Jesus wants you to know that you have a legitimate biblical reason for divorce if sexual immorality has been demonstrated by the other spouse. But Jesus is saying divorce for any other reason except for sexual immorality is not permitted by God. And those that do it anyway and remarry after they divorce outside of God's will, Jesus said commit adultery. Now that's pretty strong language, isn't it? In fact, it's controversial. Why is it controversial? Because people don't want to accept the clear teaching of what God said in his word. See, if I say it's controversial, what I, then what I, I cast a cloud over it, right? Oh, well, you know, it's controversial. People don't agree, and we're not even sure what God really meant, which means I can go out and get divorced and remarried. It's only controversial if you don't want to accept what God is saying here. Otherwise, it's very clear. Now, what does all this mean? What am I saying? Am I saying that if a person divorces their spouse for unbiblical reasons and marries another, that they are living in a perpetual state of adultery and they're going to go to hell? I'm not saying that. There are some preachers and some ministries that do teach that. There are some people that teach, look, if you're married to somebody and you get divorced for unbiblical reasons and then say you marry somebody else, it doesn't matter if you're married to them for 10 years and have four kids. God never accepted that second marriage. You know what? Divorce that spouse, go back and remarry your first one. Folks, I absolutely disagree with that. I absolutely disagree with that. So what are you saying? You know, people will challenge you, but you know. So, so what are you saying? 
You're saying that this is okay? No, it's not okay. But you know what? Let me ask you. Is divorce the unpardonable sin? Is adultery the unpardonable sin? Are these things that God absolutely will never forgive you for? Of course not. Look, Jesus Christ often laid down the ideal, right? <clears throat> Why did he do that? Because the Pharisees had so corrupted God's ideal. God said, look, here's the standard way up here. Well, man couldn't achieve that standard in his own strength. So man dragged it way down here. And the Pharisees were teaching things that made them feel like they were keeping God's law when they really weren't. You know, they hadn't committed any murder. Well, I'm obeying the law. I'm not a murderer. Have you hated somebody in your heart, Jesus said? If you have, you're already a murderer in the eyes of God. That was the standard way up here. Not just the outward actions of our lives, the inward attitudes of our minds and hearts were also things that God was looking at. I've never committed adultery, the Pharisees said. Jesus said, if you looked at a woman to lust after her in your heart, if you have, you've already committed adultery with, with that woman in the eyes of God. See, what Jesus was doing was he was taking the standard and putting it way back up high where it belonged. Same thing with marriage. I mean, in Jesus' day, divorce and remarriage was so rampant, it was not uncommon, and archaeological discoveries have borne this out. In Rome, it was not uncommon for people to have been in their 23rd, 24th marriage. And the Jews were not much better. So they had totally dragged down the standard way down here, right? So what is Jesus doing? He's putting it way up where it belonged. Now, what does that do? That puts it out of the reach of all of us, right? Because what the standard is, is sinless perfection. If you want to please God and you want to get to heaven, Jesus said, then you've got to live a perfect life way up there. I can't live a perfect life, Lord. That's exactly right. That's why I've come. Because I'm going to live the perfect life. I'm going to die in your place. And if you are a fallen sinner, which we all are, if you have not measured up to God's perfect ideal, which none of us have, you come to me and you receive me as your Lord and Savior, and I will apply my blood to your account, your sins will be paid for, and now, now I want you to live for me. It doesn't matter how many times you blew it before you got saved. Jesus is saying, now that you are my people, live a holy life. But Lord, what if we don't measure up? What if we fall? What if we blow it? Is divorce the unpardonable sin? Is adultery the unpardonable sin? No. There is forgiveness. But that doesn't diminish the standard, right? My, my goal should be to be like Jesus. That should be the goal. Do I always measure up? Of course not. What happens when I fall short of being like Jesus? Total obedience to the Father. What happens then? I confess my sins. He is faithful and just to forgive me. But he's also looking at my heart. And he sees if I'm playing fast and loose with sin. If I'm, you know, out there sinning and then, oh, well, sorry, God. He's going to chasten those who are living like that. If they really are his kids, he's going to chasten you. Because he wants you to live in obedience to him because then he can fully and totally bless your life as he wants to. But folks, I'm not, this isn't about condemning anybody this morning. It's not about putting you down if you failed in a marriage. I've failed in a lot of things. If it wasn't for my precious wife, I would have probably failed in marriage too. She's the one who's been so unselfish throughout the years. But you know what? We all fail in things. And when we do, there's forgiveness. But God wants us to not play fast and loose with sin. He wants us to understand that our lives are to be lived for His glory, not our own. Well, doesn't God want me happy? 
God wants you holy. God wants you to die to self that you might glorify him. See, everything today is about our happiness. This is why divorce is so rampant. God forbid I should sacrifice myself a little bit. God forbid I should humble myself and let my spouse do what they want to do or go on vacation where they want to go or not decorate the house, you know, decorate the house the way they want to decorate it. It's this constant self-absorption that is really destroying not just secular marriages, but Christian marriages. And we have to see it for what it is. It's not about condemning people who have been divorced and remarried, although there is pain involved in that. The tearing of two lives apart that God has joined, I'll tell you what, it's a very painful thing, and that's why God said in Malachi 2, verse 16, I hate divorce. It just destroys people made in my image. It brings devastation and pain into lives that I love. It doesn't say I hate divorced people. It says I hate divorce because it destroys people that I love. The reason that marriage, again, is so difficult today is because it's under the curse. But as Christians, we have so much that God has done for us that allow our marriages to be what he wants them to be. I mean, we have such an advantage over the world because we are in Christ. And therefore, being in Christ, having the power of the Holy Spirit at our disposal and the Word of God to instruct and guide us, I'll tell you what, folks, there is no relationship we can't see healed, starting with marriage. But, listen, if you've already got one foot out the door, you're already planning your escape, your marriage is not going to be saved. If you're thinking to yourself, and maybe you've come here this morning thinking, well, you know, my marriage is just about through. I mean, this guy says God can heal it. Ah, I'm willing to give God a few weeks. All right, God, you got, you got a month, and then I'm out of here. Your marriage is not going to work. As long as you got one foot out the door planning your escape, your, your marriage, it requires too much sacrifice and hard work. If you're already planning your escape, forget it. It's not gonna, it's not gonna, you're not going to make it. Get your foot out of the door. Close the door, lock the door, throw the key away and say, now look, you know, here we are. Lord, I am committed to stay in this relationship and I, you know, better or worse, but Lord, by your grace, I'm going to do what you've called me to do. I'm going to be the wife you want me to be or the husband you want me to be. And I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to pray constantly. I'm going to walk in the spirit. I'm going to read and obey your word. You know what? Your marriage is going to make it. But we have to do what God has said. It's not going to be easy. But I tell you what, the result is going to be something that is going to be so incredible. I don't care how bad your marriage is right now. God can make it so beautiful that you're going to look back in time and go, I can't even believe what has happened here. But it all depends on, again, doing what God has told each of you to do individually. And that's where we start next week. Looking at the role of wives and then the role of husbands and from there progressing through the rest of chapter 5, and looking at what God has said about marriage and the instructions he's given for it. So may God give us grace to study that passage, and may the Spirit give us strength to apply it. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Once again, Father, we are so thankful that you have taken us from darkness into your marvelous light. You've taken us, Lord, as um, slaves of the devil, really, and made us children of God. And Father, we just pray that you would work in our hearts and lives. Father, we are very much influenced by the world. Even as Christians, we let the world influence our thinking. 
we begin to think that it's all about our happiness. That really it's all about us, and Lord, it's not. It's about you. It's about us dying to self, that you might receive glory. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would be broken of self, and that, Lord, we would surrender our lives and our marriages totally to you. And by your grace and strength, and through the guidance of your word, recreate these marriages. Make them more beautiful than anything we could ever have imagined. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.